Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. I hope you had a great weekend. I did. Got to see the season finale of Westworld. Philip, if you're listening, you got to see it through to the end. He was given up on the show. It, it, it was it was an interesting twist at the end. It'll build for a fourth season. Welcome. Uh, the phone number here, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I should say, if you've never seen it, don't start watching. Don't, don't, don't start watching Westworld if you've never seen it. It is totally inappropriate. Um, It is, it is... Just, it is not kid friendly. Put it to you that way. Just, just, you probably should avoid it. But if you've started watching it, see it through to the end. That's all I'll say. Yes, parental notice. Uh, <laughs> that show, it took me a while to get into it. And, and you probably need to watch it on VidAngel. Uh, okay. Uh, we, we got stuff. And, you know, I wasn't going to, I was going to start with Tara Reed, but I actually, I, because of the email I got, I want to start here. Let me read you four headlines. Uh, Muskogee County and surrounding area report over 1,700 coronavirus cases. Muskogee County area reports 15 new COVID-19 cases overnight. Georgia reports over 800 new cases Saturday and eight deaths. Georgia confirms over 330 new cases on Sunday. And I started thinking, has there been a massive explosion in the virus across the state of Georgia? And so I, I texted, I, you know, I had to do it myself. I, I keep the link. Uh, and so I texted data to three, three, seven, seven, seven. What other link am I, what link did I send myself? I, I can't remember anyway, but you get the Georgia department of public health link. Uh, when you text data to three, three, seven, 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 it's, it's my link. I set it up. I did it. Uh, and I had to text it myself and I got it. Uh, 183,000 tests have been done. 28,987 cases, 1,258 ICU admissions, 5,411 hospitalizations, 1,183 deaths. But this is cumulative. This is over time. I'm looking at these headlines, 800 new cases, and I go to the map to see where are these cases? No, no, no. These are old cases coming in. Now, Here, this is the notable thing. Because if you'll remember, there was a big spike on the 20th, 898 cases. And then a week later, I I was focusing on that. A week later, you had 100-some-odd cases. Well, that's where the spike comes from. We went from having um, 898 cases on April 20th to 787 cases on the 27th. Instead of 100, it looked like a massive drop-off. It actually wasn't. It was a drop-off from 897 to 789, but each day's numbers have come in again. So for example, the 28th was 634 cases. The 29th is 463 cases. The 30th was 327 cases. Now, notably the the 30th, when we left on the first, uh, we were at uh, some, we were somewhere around 60, 70 cases. It's 128 now, and that's going to go up. Uh, In fact, I'm going to write down May 1, just so we can see tomorrow, May 1, 128 today. We'll we'll see what it is. Um, but the numbers continue to go up, but you do need to understand that the numbers that continue to go up are prior days numbers. They're not current. So the headlines say that there, there are 800 new cases in Georgia. Okay. There are 800 positive tests that have come back. Not all of those people still test positive. Now, a number of them do in that um, they're spread out over people who took the test on the 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th. So, yes, uh, we do have 800 new positive people, but they're at different points along the way. uh, And the number, the trend line is still going down. 
There is not some sudden blip. But here's the important thing. And it really, I, I was going to put this off and, and focus on Tara Reid first, but I think this is probably more relevant where to go. The media, I think, is doing a bad job altogether with the reporting. Listen, I, I realize that there are a lot of people out there who disagreed with flattening the curve, that that you needed to shelter in place. I, I know tons of people who thought this is overblown, and I'm of the position that it's not overblown. I know tons of people who have been circulating Dr. Dan Erickson's video there was actually a great rebuttal I put up on my Facebook page last night from a doctor in New York City who points out that uh, Dr. Erickson made the the worst possible mistake in statistics. He examined uh, his patients, uh, 6,000 patients, 6% of them tested positive, and he extrapolated out that 6% of the whole population tested positive, and that's not really the case. There's a reason people go to urgent care. They think they're sick. And so they are more likely to have the virus. And his statistical sampling was flawed. Uh, You cannot see hospital systems around the country overwhelmed and think this has been no big deal. But here's the point. I don't want to dwell on that stuff. Because where I think the, the policymakers and others are getting it wrong is it is time to move on. It is time to reopen. I mean, the, the point here is that they told us flatten the curve. And if you flatten the curve, you could go back to life with precautions. And now they've moved the goalposts on us. The, the, the healthcare experts and the pundits out there who, who have uh, been strongly advocating shelter in place and more draconian measures than most governors put in place. And what it was, was from flatten the curve to now crush the curve, to now get rid of the curve, to now end all cases. You know, we're already starting to see people in California today. There are reports out of people who decided they were going to go reopen whatever the government said. The government can come shut them down. In Texas, in Dallas, Texas, uh, where the, the public officials have been super aggressive in shutting down local businesses, a local hair salon was on the verge of bankruptcy and reopened, and their customers are doing 24-hour patrols of the business with armed guards to make sure the police can't come shut it down. There's a sign there that this isn't working. Now, I have to tell you, I went out uh, on... Friday and was a little bit bothered by some of the crowds that I saw because the governor did say shelter in places up and but he advised strenuously wear masks in public and and be smart about it and I noticed on Friday and Saturday a massive crowds at a particular restaurant in town where that they allegedly were were restricting people inside but they had a big crowd of people amassed outside waiting to get in just like your standard restaurant queues of of, of old at a local farmer's market, they had a, a crowd of people. No one was socially distanced. And I'm worried about a rebound. Uh, my, my, my fear here is that we're going to get into a situation where in two weeks we are going to see the numbers come up. It takes about two weeks to show a trend, an upward trend in the virus. And so I do have that concern. And I hope people will be smart about how they go about resuming their life. But it's time to resume life. By every now scientific standard, they have told us repeatedly that this virus will slow down or stop when summer heat comes. Summer heat will come. Now, ironically, uh, there's a big cold front. Uh, Temperatures are below normal right now. 
Uh, I, I'm here in Macon at 70. The high today is going to be 86, which is glorious. On Tuesday, allegedly it will be 90, but they're expecting over the next week seasonal temperatures to, to begin to go down. In fact, uh, what we're supposed to see is tomorrow uh, 90 degrees, and then it's going to be in the 70s. I can't believe that 90 is right. That just seems bizarre. Uh, but uh, take a Daresville. I'm dying to get up to Barnsley Gardens. It is going to be 79 in Adairsville today, 81 tomorrow, and then down into the 60s on Wednesday. So, so definitely cool trends coming. Now, which is which is fine. I like the cool weather. Uh, in Rome, it's going to be in the 60s later this week. Uh, in and we're we're seeing this pattern. My goodness, it's going to be in the low 60s in in Clarksville. Um, but warm weather is going to come, and warm weather is going to slow things down. And I do think at this point the media needs to start having these conversations uh, beyond uh, keep everyone sheltered in place to how can we reopen. I thought it was very striking that a lot of national media coverage focused on crowds in Georgia. There were huge crowds in Central Park and, and Bryant Park over the weekend in New York City. Those are uh, Central Park, obviously, probably the most famous park in the world outside of Hyde Park in London. Uh, it, it, hugely famous. Bryant Park is another popular park in New York City. There were massive crowds there. Uh, I saw conservatives putting the pictures on social media, and they were confirmed pictures. But meanwhile, the media had pictures of, of beaches at Tybee Island here in Georgia and peach, uh, pictures of Piedmont Park in Atlanta. The crowds, the Beltline in Atlanta, Midtown Atlanta filled with people. And you know the irony, demographically, those people are Stacey Abrams voters. It's not like all the Stacey Abrams voters stayed home and it was the conservatives. Well, now, no, if you're in Midtown Atlanta, the odds are you're a 20-something millennial hipster who, who is ignoring the healthcare warnings or, or your Gen Z or whatever they want to call the Gen Z kids now. The late teens, early 20-something, they were the ones crowding the park and they ain't Brian Kemp supporters. But the media would have you believe there was some sort of revolt down here. You know, it, it is fascinating. Uh, going back to this polling on Friday, if you recall on Friday, there was a poll out in Georgia. Brian Kemp, uh, worst popularity he's ever had, like 42%. The president tied with Joe Biden. I have been told more over the weekend uh, that even behind the scenes, this is a poll pushed by the House Republicans, and it is designed more to buttress the speaker's position than anything reflective of the state party. In fact, I talked to a senior person within the state party who said the poll is BS and that uh, the internal polling that is not being leaked actually shows substantially higher margins for Kim and for the president in Georgia. So why is this one released by the state house? Perhaps it has something to do with some, some saber rattling going on in some special elections and elsewhere with the speaker. Perhaps it has to do with trying to, to gain clout and political capital at the governor's expense. There are clearly some Republicans within the state uh, who are working hard to try to undermine the governor right now and take advantage of the situation. And uh, they're probably going to need to be stopped. <sighs> you know the problem here, just randomly, everyone is made of virus political. You know, I, I mean, come on. I, I, I would much rather. So so Chris Burns um, was here, you know, Dynamic Money. Uh, the, they sponsor the program. You'll hear Chris's voice later. Uh, he, he had a, a technical issue. He's got a weekend radio show on my other 
uh, on WSB in Atlanta where I do my evening show. His sister was wrong. We haven't had visitors in our house for two months. He's been quarantined for two months. It's like, hey, come come do your show for my house. You'll be fine. And, and everything is is discombobulated here. My, my seat was too high. His head is way bigger than mine. I had to readjust my headphones, wiped everything down with Lysol both times. All I would much rather be be sitting on my front porch having a good time, uh, watching the season finale of Westworld, talking about the sourdough. The sourdough bread I made yesterday was incredible, folks. It was fantastic, but I cut into it too soon, and it got gummy. Never, you know, they always say wait for your bread to cool down for two hours, and I'm thinking, you people are insane. It's fresh bread. It needs to be eaten hot. The problem is if you cut into it too soon, it gets gummy. Mine got gummy. It was bad. I would much rather be talking about that stuff. Instead, I got to talk about the political ramifications of a freaking virus. Maybe we should get to Tara Reid. We, we probably should get to Tara Reid because, you know, I have said— for three years now, I have said the left will eventually get a Donald Trump. You, you know how they view Donald Trump. The left will eventually get someone just like how they view Donald Trump, and they will never admit it. And we're seeing this with the Tara Reid Joe Biden situation, where even prominent trial lawyers on the left are coming out and saying, Tara Reid, I believe you. But for the greater good, shut up. We have to get rid of Donald Trump. We This double standard is amazing. And meanwhile, in New York City, they're trying to run Samaritan's Purse out of town, which has been up there trying to help with the virus. And now it's got to be run out of town because gay rights groups are upset. It turns out Harvard University, Harvard, Harvard was going to have a, a civil rights, where is this, from the Washington Free Beacon, Harvard was going to have a human rights event, and they canceled it. Why? Well, let me read you this. Harvard University canceled a panel discussion on Hong Kong protests because the event coincided with the university president's meet and greet with Chinese President Xi Jinping, according to a former university scholar. Ting Bao, a former fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School's Human Rights Center, attempted to host a panel discussion on Chinese human rights issues in 2015. A vice dean at Harvard Law School, however, ordered him in February of that year to cancel the event because it would have been embarrassing for the university, according to Ting. He called me into his office and he told me that Harvard's president was meeting Chinese President Xi Jinping. Ting told the Washington Free Beacon, it seems that for Harvard's leaders, it was very embarrassing if we had a talk at Harvard about human rights issues in China when the Harvard president just came back from China after meeting with the Chinese president. What? Oh, this is like so. So that idiot Max Boot in the Washington Post and on online is is blasting um, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, for pointing out that China engaged in a willful cover up of the virus. Do you know what China did, by the way? China actually bought, kept telling people all over the world that the virus was no big deal and was spreading or, or was buying up the supply of PPE the personal protective equipment. China was buying up most of the world's supply of masks and latex gloves. And then after it had secured everything, told the world uh, when nobody else had enough stuff, hey, guess what? This virus turns out it's spreading. 
And you know the the response of the intellectual elite in the United States, it's to blame Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump. Here's what Pompeo said. Martha, you've got the facts just about right. Uh, we can uh, confirm that the Chinese Communist Party did all that it could to make sure that the world didn't learn in a timely fashion uh, about what was taking place. We, there's lots of evidence of that. Some of it you can see in public, right? Uh, we've seen announcements. We've seen the fact that uh, they kicked journalists out. We saw the fact that those who were trying to report on this, medical professionals inside of China were silenced. They shut down reporting all the kind of things that authoritarian regimes do. It's the way communist parties operate. This is classic communist disinformation effort. Uh, that created enormous risk. And now you can see hundreds of thousands of people around the world, tens of thousands in the United States have been armed. President Trump is very clear. We're going to hold those responsible accountable, and we'll do so on a timeline that are, is our own. Now, here's the president. Well, I don't think there's any question about it. We wanted to go in. They didn't want us to go in early, very early. You'll see that because things are coming out that are pretty compelling now. Uh, so I don't think there's any question. Don't forget, China tried to blame it first on some of our soldiers. That turned out to not go too far. And I really got very upset with that. That was not right. And then they tried to blame it in Europe. I said, how did Europe get involved all of a sudden? You know, Italy suffered probably more than anybody per capita, but Italy, Spain, France now is on an additional lockdown. They've got tremendous problems. All of Europe, it's been a disaster. And you know, when I put a ban on, those people went for the most part, not here. And I'm not happy about this. It's terrible because it's life, whether it's here or Europe. But we put a ban on very early on China coming in. They went to Europe. Most of those people went to Europe. That's why Italy was so badly affected. And you, you just see what they're going through. China tried to blame Europe for this. Yep. And let's see, do I have time? Yes, one more, Dr. Burks. There is a new report out of Australia this weekend that five intelligence agencies, including the U.S., uh, have put together a dossier that indicates that the Chinese government in the early stages either hid or covered up the fact of the coronavirus and its spread in Japan. I'm not going to ask you to comment in any way on intelligence, but from a public health standpoint, did the lack of transparency from China in the early days, in January, February, even into March, did that slow down the public health response in this country? Wherever that first jump occurs, whether it's from animal to human or lab to human, it doesn't really matter. Whoever, wherever that happens, you have to over-communicate. Because that's, the, that's when you get the first instance of how transmittable this virus is. What are the people that it's particularly susceptible to? That didn't happen. And it didn't happen until late, and you know it didn't happen until mid-January that they even talked about human-to-human -human transmission. And that really, and when you see how many countries now are in Infected, that did fan the virus across the globe. And the left's response mocked the president and Mike Pompeo for pointing out, I, I realize in the 1980s, the left sided with the Soviet Union repeatedly against Ronald Reagan. So we really shouldn't be surprised to see the left siding with China these days, but it really is remarkable at a time of global pandemic, uh, at largely because of what China did not do and what China did as well, the left would rather stand with China than with the United States. And you know, this has nothing to do with money. 
That's important here to understand. This has nothing to do with money in the same way it wasn't the, the left wasn't siding with the Soviet Union with money for money in the 80s. It's all about hating America and what we stand for and, and the blame game against the United States. That they, they do not like a large portion of this country, and they're willing to stand with those who would destroy this country because they don't like this. It, it's so sad to see. If you need financial advice during these times, uh, be sure to check out my friend Chris Burns and Dynamic Money. They are sponsors of the program. Uh, he is my my regular guest host, and he actually is my financial advisor, although I may have to ditch him for Cliff, who works in his office, because we always get together and, and decide we're going to sit down and plan out this budgeting stuff, and <laughs> we wind up sitting on the front porch and talking the whole time. It's like, oh, we hadn't done the budget. So I may have to I may have to fire Chris and use Cliff at Dynamic Money, but Dynamic Money is who my wife and I, we actually do use them. Uh, and uh, if you need help right now uh, navigating finances, your 401k, what to do, can you refinance your house right now? Do you need help with all that? Uh, seriously, consider reaching out to Dynamic Money. Dynamicmoney.com is the website. Tell them I sent you. Uh, they're good people, really are good people, and uh, they really are our financial advisors. They are local, and you're all getting used to Zoom calls right now, so you can do a Zoom call with them. Uh, if you go to dynamicmoney.com, um, tell them I sent you, and uh, you can find out. My, my wife and I were doing good. Our, our oven actually broke uh, last night, and so it was nice to know that thanks to the advice we've been getting from Dynamic Money, we've been building up a – a, an emergency fund, which I had never done before. I'd just been putting stuff on a credit card and then um, having to pay off the credit card. And now I've got, they, they helped us budget. So it's good stuff. Um, David McIntosh is going to join me. I thought he was actually joining me now so in the next hour. Uh, he's from the President Club for Growth to talk about reopening the economy. Right now, I want to talk about Tara Reid because additional news is coming forward. Additional claims are coming forward. Uh, th this is actually really remarkable, though. I want to read for you this new uh, – this is the Associated Press story. Uh, Tara Reid, the headline, I didn't use sexual harassment in the Biden complaint. Tara Reid, the former Senate staffer who alleges Joe Biden sexually assaulted her 27 years ago, says she filed a limited report with a congressional personnel office and did not explicitly accuse him of sexual assault or harassment. I remember talking about him wanting me to serve drinks because he liked my legs and thought I was pretty and he made me uncomfortable, Reed said in an interview. I know that I was too scared to write about the sexual assault. Reed told the AP twice that she did not use the phrase sexual harassment in filing the complaint, but at other points in the interview said that uh, that was the behavior she believed she was describing. She said, I talked about sexual harassment, retaliation, the main word I used, and I know I didn't use sexual harassment, was uncomfortable. And I remember retaliation. Reed described the report after the AP discovered additional transcripts and notes from the interview with Reed last year in which she says she chickened out after going to the Senate personnel office. Now, you got to go all the way down. This is a long, lengthy report. And you have to go all the way to the bottom of this report. In fact, let me, um, I, 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 yes, you're right. I shouldn't do this on the fly. It is completely unprofessional of me to do. I, I can hear Charlie yelling at me right now, but I'm going to do it anyway. There's a method of my madness. Bear with me here. Uh, we're going to do this uh, Associated Press report. And it is, let me, there's one little thing here that needs to be deleted. Yep, 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 yep. That needs to be deleted. Okay, here's the reason I did this. This is a 1,046 words. 
1,046 words describing their interview with Tara Reid. You have to get to the last 92 words to get to the real news nugget. Yes, I did just say news nugget. The Associated Press has also spoken to two additional people who spoke on condition of anonymity to protect their family's privacy, who said Reed had told them about aspects of her allegations against Biden years ago. One friend who knew Reed in 1993 said Reed told them about the alleged assault when it happened. The second friend met Reed more than a decade after the alleged incident and confirmed that Reed had a conversation with the friend in 2007 or 2008 about experiencing sexual harassment from Biden while working in his Senate office. So a 1,092-word piece, or 1,046 words, you have to go to the very end, to the last 92 words, to get that news nugget. Really remarkable, wouldn't you say? If this was a Republican, where do you think that would be? Where, where do you think that would be? By the way, you want to get a sense of where this is being, how this is being covered? Here's Nicole Wallace on MSNBC. I, I'm actually, Andrea, to your point, I think that this is a year without campaigns, without a campaign trail, without a campaign press corps. And the silver lining, if you will, is that voters are going to have to watch that interview this morning and, and make their own judgments. about. There, there are no more arbiters. There are no more poobahs in either party. Let me just say this, too, having once been a part of the Republican Party. The right isn't running an intellectually honest operation to get to the bottom of whether Tara Reid was victimized. The right is running a smear campaign against Joe Biden. The right wants to create some sort of equal playing field on which Donald Trump's more than two dozen or nearly two dozen accusers sort of have some company on the other side. The right is not running the same operation that the Democrats are running, which is to try to, as you just articulated, Andrea, have some consistency around statements that I think just about every elected Democrat has made about women in, in the context of the Me Too movement. So as I said with Kayleigh McEnany, everyone should proceed with caution about statements made around this on the right. Um, um, you know, it was Nicole Wallace who argued that based on the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh, he probably shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. If there's a double standard here, uh, we're seeing it on the left, and it's very interesting that the argument that is being made more and more is a double standard argument. That, oh, you know, they're just trying to protect from from the accusers. They're just trying to protect from from uh, th- those who would say things about Donald Trump. They're trying to, to block that. no. No, no, uh, there's a real problem here. Lisa Bloom, Lisa Bloom is the trial lawyer. You know, she's Gloria, uh, this is Gloria Allred. Is it that Lisa Lisa Bloom, Gloria Allred's, who, who is she? Yes, 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 she's Gloria Allred's daughter. Listen to this, this is what she tweeted out. I believe you, Tara Reid. 
You have people who remember you told them about this decades ago. We know he is handsy. She puts that in quotes, handsy. You're not asking for money. You've obviously struggled mightily with this. I still have to fight Trump, so I will support Joe. But I believe you, and I'm sorry. What? I believe you, but I still have to fight Trump. What? You don't have to fight with Joe. This is this this is just this is this is a, a, a amazing. This this is amazing. Lisa Bloom says she believes Tara Reid, but we need our assaulter too. Can you imagine if Harvey Weinstein was running for president? These people would say, "Listen, I believe you, but we've got to fight Donald Trump, so we need Harvey." I mean, that's the standard they're setting here. Here's Amy Walter on on ABC. The tide is there in the Democratic Party to do something as extensive as the New York Times is outlining. Yeah, not much, Chuck. And I think for a lot of Republicans and conservatives, the idea that the DNC is going to put together an unbiased panel to look through (laughs) uh, the... the documents of Joe Biden is, is kind of stretching it. Look, um, Chuck, we're, we are in the place where we've been for so much of these last couple of years, especially in the light of this Me Too movement about the fight not just over who to believe, but the fight over hypocrisy. And that's where a lot of this debate is being centered on uh, Democrats, including Joe Biden, but a lot of Democrats and liberals who held one standard for folks like Brett Kavanaugh right. and seem to be holding a different standard for Joe Biden. Yeah, you know, what's so interesting is that younger Democrats tend to be more left-leaning and thus tend to like Biden the least and thus are more vocal about ditching him. This is from Elizabeth Bruning in the New York Times, the headline, Democrats, it's time to consider a plan B if you are lucky when you report your sexual assault. You'll become known as a person who is sexually assaulted. If you're unlucky you'll become known as a person who lied about being sexually assaulted. It could still go either way for Tara Reid. In March, Ms. Reid told journalist Katie Halper on Halper's podcast that she had been sexually assaulted by Joe Biden in 1993 while working in the Senate office. Ms. Reid contends that sometime in the spring of that year, Mr. Biden forced her against a wall, shoved his hand up her skirt, and forced his fingers, well, there. Mr. Biden has unequivocally denied the allegations since the interview with Ms. Halper. An ad hoc vetting of Ms. Reed's claim has unfolded in the media. Those who doubt Ms. Reed cite the fact she exhibited unusual behavior over the years, such as using several aliases. Then she praised Mr. Biden occasionally. Then she made different allegations at different times that a re- re- recollection of the alleged incident is spotty in places. Those who believe her point out that reporters were able to locate a 1993 clip of Larry King Live, which features Ms. Reed's mother calling in to ask an attorney who represented whistleblowers about what her daughter's options were after having serious problems with a prominent senator. That a then-neighbor of Ms. Reed's had confirmed she spoke with Ms. Reed about the incident in the mid-90s. That her brother and friends remember a contemporaneous disclosure as well. I have my own impressions regarding Ms. Reed's allegations, but no one save Ms. Reed and Mr. Biden know with certainty what her claims, whether her claims are true. What I can assert with firm conviction is that Democrats ought to start considering a backup plan for 2020. Ms. Reed's account is not nearly as incredible as some have argued. In the course of my reporting, I've worked closely with many survivors of sexual assault. It isn't unusual in my experience for survivors to experience be ex- exhibit behavior that seems unstable or erratic to others. 
They may initially disclose to investigators or journalists only a fragment of what happened and then reveal more over time. Some even falsely recant, either because they sense the police don't believe them or because they fear the consequences of pressing their claim. And victims often maintain relationships with their attackers or harbor mixed feelings about them. It's not at all uncommon for someone to still have positive feelings about aspects of the person who assaulted them or to admire or respect them, Scott Berkowitz, the founder and president of the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, told me. With people who work for politicians, there's usually a strong measure of loyalty or respect in the relationship. So it's not indicative that someone wasn't telling the truth. Now here we go. Let's skip a little bit. Let's get down here. This is collateral damage that Democrats who have spent the last few years championing the Me Too movement should be loath to incur. Democrats who subject Ms. Reed's allegations to a level of scrutiny not widely applied to accusers in similar circumstances, such as Christine Blasey Ford, who famously came forward about Brett Kavanaugh, also open up past and future cases to reproachful disregard. Conservatives like my colleague Brett Stevens can see the plain gulf between how Democrats have approached sexual assault and politically advantageous cases versus Mrs. Reed, Ms. Reed's. And the evident hypocrisy threatens to discredit the entire enterprise. Now, hang on a second. I got to find you. Where was this from over the weekend? Uh, what's her name? Um, 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 uh, Kathleen Parker. You know Kathleen Parker. Kathleen Parker. She's the columnist at the Washington Post who CNN hired to be on with Elliot Spitzer. Here, this is what she writes. Now is the time to feel sorry for Christine Blasey Ford. Her days as the face that launched a million sexual assault allegations are over, thanks to Tara Reid and the blinding hypocrisy of Democrats who sought to destroy Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh during the Senate confirmation hearings. Ford's dredged up memories of an alleged high school assault by Kavanaugh couldn't get a cameo appearance today. Given the sudden high standards Democrats have imposed now that Joe Biden, their presumptive presidential nominee, is on the hot seat. My, my, where to begin? Reed, who described herself as a 56-year-old working-class poor person, alleges that 27 years ago when she was a staffer and then Senator Joe Biden's office, her boss cornered her in a Capitol complex, and we know the rest now. I'm going to skip all that. Now, let's see. Whatever one's gut says at this point a much-relied-upon organ for the self-appointed judges who issue verdicts in such cases, the double standard being applied to the former vice president by some Democrats, especially by female senators who are shortlisted as his running mate, is stunning but not surprising. We've seen this movie before. The same goes for certain media luminaries who were quick to indict Kavanaugh based on gut feelings and other vital signs, though under circumstances that were very different and with evidence that was much thinner. Biden was a grown man who already had been a U.S. senator for 20 years when the alleged attack occurred. Kavanaugh was a high school kid who allegedly grappled with a girl his own age at a party where too many beers were consumed. Not one shred of evidence or corroboration was ever produced to support Ford's claim against Kavanaugh. Not one. She just seemed credible, people said. But Reed doesn't on what basis? Don't we believe women these days? Republicans treated Ford like a Fabergé egg, a White House counselor, Kellyanne Conway once noted, while Democrats, until they were recently shamed in taking Reid seriously, at first seemed to regard her as a troubled woman. 
Without putting either woman's motivations on trial, it has always been appropriate to scrutinize their credibility. Under today's de facto believe every woman standard, few dared challenge Ford, who is backed by a fleet of pro bono lawyers and top drawer feminist organizations. Not even the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee, all men, dared question Ford, instead hiring a female sexual assault prosecutor to gently interview her. Reed has received no such help, despite corroboration by others, including a neighbor, Linda Lacasse, who recalled Reed providing details. No one ever corroborated Ford's story, including the four or five others who she said were at the party where Kavanaugh allegedly attacked her. Even her closest friendly, Lynn Kaiser, told the FBI she never met Kavanaugh. Man. Here's the, this, this I got to read you this, this last little bit here. This is the icing on the cake. In the aftermath of the Kavanaugh hearings, Christine Blasey Ford became a symbol of women's empowerment. She appeared on the cover of Time magazine and received awards and praise for her courage. She also suffered vicious social media attacks and threats, as did Kavanaugh and his family. She has largely kept to herself since, which is surely good for her soul, but is also a reminder of another lesson in the decades-long culture war over sexual harassment. Once the feminist power brokers are finished with you, they move on to slay other monsters, unless it's one of their own monsters. During commercial break, I put something up at the resurgent.com. You can go to the resurgent.com every day and see what I'm writing about and thinking, but but I, you can go see this AP report for yourself. It is really remarkable. Uh, the, the headline I gave it, the AP buries big news in the last 92 words of a 1,046-word story on Tara Reid, that news being that there are now more people who have come forward. By the way, if you want to know the play here, um, it, it, one of the things we're seeing, one of the things we're hearing, let, let's see, can I find this? Where's this audio? Maybe I don't have the audio. Um, Chuck Todd on social media and on his MSNBC meet the press show pointed out that what's probably going to happen here is that the Democrats are going to make it about the president's alleged victims too. And that if they're going to go after Biden, then the Democrats are going to go after Trump. But there's a real problem here for the Democrats. The Democrats believe at their core that Donald Trump is a bad man, orange man bad. And the Democrats believe at their core that Joe Biden is a good man. And the reality is the situation is more complicated than that. And by the way, I think Joe Biden's a perfectly fine guy. He's just wrong on everything. And by the Democrats' own standards that they have set with Brett Kavanaugh, they, the irony here is just so delicious. It, it really is hilarious to me that, that they got so emotionally invested on setting uh, loose standards to try to destroy Brett Kavanaugh that by those same standards now, they're toast with with, with Joe Biden. They cannot, and, and this is it. This is the campaign issue for the Trump campaign. The, the, the media in 2016 went overboard with allegations against Donald Trump and his treatment of women. They went overboard. And then while Trump was president, they put Michael Avenatti on TV every single night on CNN to attack Donald Trump on behalf of Stormy Daniels and others. 
And then when Brett Kavanaugh rolled around, they put Avenetti back up there with, with a loose claim by a woman whose story couldn't be corroborated. And now they refuse to hold themselves to that standard. They refuse to engage the story. And it is striking to see the double standard. And that's going to hurt the Democrats. It's going to hurt them because there are a lot of people thinking, you know what, I can pull the trigger for Joe Biden. These are people who may have stayed on the sidelines. See, this isn't about getting Trump's voters to vote for Biden. This is about getting people off the sidelines to vote for Biden. The Democratic calculation is that people will stay on the sidelines, and that benefits Donald Trump because more people are passionate for Trump than passionate for Biden. And so they got to get people off the sidelines. But you can't get people off the sidelines for Biden if they think Biden's a predator. You can't get people off the sidelines if you think, wait a second, Democrats, you people are as hypocritical as the Republicans. You can't get people off the sidelines if if they're looking at Joe Biden thinking, oh, my goodness gracious, this is appalling. What are we doing? This is bad. They're having real struggles in the Democratic Party now, and they know it. And the question is, if they replace Biden, who would they replace him with? Why, good morning or afternoon, wherever you are. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. That there is the phone number, and I'm going to start the hour with a phone call from Rome because I was going to talk about this topic. And, uh, well, Randy wants to talk about the topic. So I'm going to go to you, Randy. Welcome. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you? Oh, it's a beautiful day in Rome. It's 65 degrees. The sun is out, and I'm out and about doing errands. Oh, you so, you, you shut your day. mouth, Randy. It's always a beautiful day in Rome. I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I love Rome. <laughs> it is always a beautiful day. It, uh, unless it's raining, and then you just kind of wait it out and find the time yes. to get outside. <laughs> we got, All right. We got beautiful we, we, with trails and... Uh, listen, we're not taking a room, we're not taking a Rome tourist tour here. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got to promote somehow, man. Yep, yep. What's going on? But just your your thoughts about the left and everything. What most people don't realize is that there was a great love for the Soviet Union, for Stalin, for all these things back in the 20s and 30s. Here he was being this ruthless dictator. But the left in the United States loved him, and they thought he was doing all these great things. And Roosevelt, they tried to – I think Roosevelt finally caught wind of it. But even Roosevelt, even FDR during the, the war was kind of the arbiter between Churchill and Stalin many times mm-hmm. because, you know, we have this, this fascination with the idea of, of making everything egalitarian and that no matter what effort or anything else, everybody's going to be the same – and it just doesn't work. I mean, well, I'm a, I'm so a retired. There's a there's a one little detail I will add. God bless you for okay. not adding it. But it wasn't just Stalin the left really was infatuated with. There was this little man with a short mustache in Germany yeah. right before the war they loved as well. They loved him. They loved, I mean, and the right at times loved him. Yeah. That was what was crazy. There were people on the right 
that loved him, like the Lindberghs and people like that, and thought because of the precision, because of how they 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 failed to see the issues, they failed to see the the bad side that was going on. And history teaches us that, but we we just continuously, many up many, continuously mm-hmm. want to ignore it. And say no, we can fix what has been bad because we just think it's the idea is a good idea. Well, um, yeah, and you know, I mean, there, there's also this issue. Let, let me let you go there, but thank you for the phone call. But and I'm glad you called in with that because uh, it is very much where I want to go right now with some of the stuff I'm seeing circulate out there. Uh, you know, uh, John F. Kennedy's father was a big fan of Hitler's, and the New York Times loved Stalin. In fact, Walter Durante, who was the Times uh, Moscow bureau chief, became a propagandist for Stalin, uh, helped him cover up the famine in Ukraine, all the bad stuff. So they focused on all the good stuff and, and how, and you know, we see this today with the left's fixation with China. Tom Friedman writes regularly about China. Tom, Tom Friedman, uh, in fact, let me, it's been so long now, um, let me... Yeah, they're, they're, listen, you're just going to have to wait for me here because I got to recall the details, right? Because I was on a train ride with Friedman one time uh, and he, it, it was, it was a b- bizarre thing to me that I was on this train with him headed, you know, he's very notoriously uh, pro-China and he writes deeply sympathetic stuff about China all the time. And I was on this train wire. I was on this Amtrak. Yes, I was first class Acela. Um, and it, he, he writes all this, this wonderful stuff. And I will never forget. He was sitting and, and started yelling about how it, the treatment on this train ride for him by, by the steward who was trying to collect his stuff and hadn't collected enough stuff quickly that this would never happen in China or something. It was, it was a bizarre moment where this guy, clearly he, he loves the Chinese. Uh, he writes all the time about how in China they can build a high-speed rail so quickly or, or there's no this or there's no that. Or, and the left, they turn a blind eye to all the bad. Part of this is secularism. And there is a secularism. Randy mentioned um, Lindbergh and others uh, on the right liking uh, Hitler. You know, it wasn't just on the right either. Um, it, it, what's her name? Um, the, the founder of Planned Parenthood loved Hitler's eugenics programs. In fact, uh, the er, the precursor to Planned Parenthood uh, derived many of its ideas from uh, Hitler's Germany prior to World War II. Uh, the the sterilization of uh, poor blacks and the sterilization of the mentally ill so that they could not breed to wipe society of those who would drag down society to build a better race. Margaret Sanger, that's it, Sanger, yes. All, all, all that stuff comes from Hitler's Germany. Now, you need to understand here, and, and I'm I'm trying to do this delicately, but I don't think there's a way I can do it delicately. There's a common thread on the right and the left's fixation with Hitler, the left's fixation with Stalin, and the current left's fixation with China. And to understand the strain of people on the right who fixated with the Nazis in pre-World War II Germany, you have to understand who did it. 
without a doubt, without any hesitation, the common thread was a secularism. It is uh, those on the right and those on the left who believe you can build heaven on earth. Those are the ones who get fixated with authoritarianism, where authoritarianism can snap their finger. You, you see, if you're a person of faith, then you don't have to be a Christian. You just have to recognize that there's a God who built everything. There is a God who, who is the creator. If you recognize that there is a higher power to whom you must account, you are far less likely to engage in a heavy-handed authoritarianism, largely because you know one day you're going to be accountable. But more so if you're of the Judeo-Christian faith, which most of the world is, you recognize we're all sinners. I'm a conservative because I want as few sinners in charge as me as possible. But if you're a person of faith who recognizes we're all sinners, you also understand that we're never going to create a heaven on earth. I mean, the the opening chapters of Genesis are pretty clear on, on heaven on earth is largely impossible after the fall of man. Hello, Tower of Babel, Tower of Babel. But there is this strain on the left and the right that is largely secular, that is okay with some forms of authoritarianism to to make your best life now. The Joel Osteen of uh, political philosophy. Now, if you're a person of faith, you know you're never going to have your best life now. This is If you're a person of faith, you're a believer, this is the worst you're ever going to have it, and it's going to be way better in eternity. If you're not a person of faith, well, then the Bible's pretty clear. This is the best you're ever going to have it. In fact, many of you get, get all sorts of things that the rest of us don't get because God's showing you a little bit extra mercy, and he's giving you the great things now because you're not going to get them later. I mean, there, there are entire passages of Scripture, by the way. If you don't believe me, just, just read uh, Psalm 73 that it is an act of mercy by God. You know how you see the, the the secular godless people? And I mean, they're the super wealthy ones. And you're thinking, my goodness. I mean, why doesn't God, let, why is God giving this to, to the godless secularist, uh, the, the Hollywood elite? Why are they living in the lap of luxury, mocking God and, and the rest of us, we're getting pooped upon by the world? Well, because if you read Psalm 73, you, you find out this is a small act of mercy on God's behalf to, to those secular atheists who hate God, because this is the best they're ever going to give it. You get, what, 80, 90 years best of this life, and then you get an eternity living like that, but with God. They get 80 to 90 years of, of the, the wealth and luxury of the world, and then hellfire for eternity. So don't be jealous of them. It's part of the moral of the story. But the other part of the moral of the story is, is this fixation on authoritarianism. The idea that you can bring about a utopian society now, but there's a real danger here. Why is it that secularists tend towards authoritarianism and tyranny? It's not just their fixation with uh, the, the ability to snap your finger and get what you want. to Snap your finger and the trains run on time. Snap your finger and you build high-speed rail. Snap your finger and you transition from coal-fired plants all the way to, to windmills and unicorn farts to power the world. There's something else as well. If, if you're a Christian, let, let me just ask you, because I, I suspect most of you, you may, you may be culturally Christian, you may be familiar with it, but even if you're an atheist listening right now, you, you're generally familiar with the parameters of Christianity. If you are a Christian and you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you repent, what happens to you? 
you go to heaven. You get eternity with God. If you trust in Jesus and repent, remember it, it's repent and be saved. You need to repent. Repentance is part of it. It's what a lot of liberal theology forgets these days. You still have to repent. Uh, Jesus doesn't want you as you are. Um, I, I, I know some people say that, but no, Jesus doesn't want you as you are. You must be born again. But you do that, you go to heaven, do you not? This is not this is theology 101. I mean, this is very basic. You 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 it, it, repent and be saved. You you go to Jesus. Except now, let's contrast that with the secular religion. When you have your epiphany, when you wake up one day and you realize that you know what, gosh, biology is wrong. My goodness, I'm so sorry. I repent. I used to believe that boys could never become girls, and now I realize boys can become girls, and girls can become boys, and you hoist the rainbow flag and declare your allegiance. And then you go out and you turn off your power, and you add solar panels to the roof of your house, and you go out and find some unicorns and use their farts to power your life because you're no longer going to use fossil fuels. you got to use unicorn farts and windmills, and, and you repent. You recycle everything, you become a composter, you get chickens in your backyard, you don't eat anything that isn't grown within five miles of your house, and you use your recycled corn cobs for toilet paper instead of toilet paper itself. Because you've repent of your sins, you realize the environmentalists are right. And then you go out and you get pregnant men, you go out, you find a way to get pregnant, and you have an abortion just so you can prove your fidelity to feminism and Planned Parenthood. You, you have embraced all of the left's causes. You have fully become secularist. You, you've, got, you've got windmills, a rainbow flag, and you've had your abortion. What happens? Well, in the secular religion, you still go to hell. Why? Because there are polluters still out there. There are Christian bigot homophobes still out there, and there are pro-lifers still out there. See, with, with, with regular religion, you and your relationship with your God is all right. You and your relationship with God is, is all the meaningful part of it. You, you repent and you're saved. With the secular religion, you can repent, but you're still going to hell as long as there are all these other people out there who are going to destroy the planet. Because with secularism, this is all there is. So as long as there's injustice and, and, and homophobia and hatred and polluters and, and pro-lifers out there, you can't get your heaven on earth. The only way to do it is to silence them, drive them from the town square, or worse, or worse. I always thought it was a stunning bit of irony. Remember the Charlie Hebdo massacre? Oh, man, did I get in trouble with, with, with left-wing groups when I pointed this out. Uh, it, Charlie Hebdo, the Muslims stormed into the Charlie Hebdo. They they murdered all the people of Charlie Hebdo because Charlie Hebdo, they had done the cartoon of Muhammad. I always thought it was in stunning contrast that while that was happening in Atlanta, um, left-wing activists were also storming City Hall to demand the firing of the fire chief because he had the audacity to write a book that quoted the Bible, quoted the New Testament, that homosexuality is a sin. Who told you you were naked? It was a book he had gotten permission to write, and he wrote it for his Sunday school class, focusing on young black men and sin and how to live your life in a godly way. And the left demanded that he be fired, wanted his life ruined. They ultimately, he got he sued, and they had to settle the case. 
the left in the United States, thank God, isn't going to go out and kill you for deviating from orthodoxy. Like the, 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 the extremists in the Middle East. But they're still going to try to destroy your life. They're going to try to destroy your career. They're going to try to destroy your livelihood for violating their orthodoxy. You see, as long as there are heretics, secularists can't be safe. Because as long as I can still pollute, their salvation is not guaranteed. With, with real faith, with real religion, your faith is independent of someone else. But with the secularists, it's not. That's why the secularists always lead to authoritarianism and tyranny. So you've got this real fixation on the left that uh, you're going to be able to snap your finger and have a command control society where the government says build this and it gets built. But as long as there are those who disagree, you can't have that utopia on earth and it leads to bad things. Historically, everywhere it happens, secularism leads to tyranny. You can see it in the creeping tyranny in Europe right now. Slowly but surely, the whittling of way of rights. So I understand people here who are concerned when the government wants you to shelter in place. And I think we do a bad job of distinguishing in this country. But my goodness gracious, people, let's just recognize what's going on right now. The secular left in the United States is excusing China because they hate the president so much they will apologize for the tyrants in China who gun down dissidents all because orange man bad. And you should be really concerned with that. I have the most important news of the day. I I, I, I have gotten the email during commercial break. My Rectech grill has shipped. Woohoo! <laughs> I've been waiting for this thing. Uh, J. Crew has filed for bankruptcy. I, I, I've, I've asked. Uh, no one seems to know yet if they filed their bankruptcy on Gingham or, or Seersucker, but I'm sure we will find out very soon. Uh, one way or the other. Also, you need to know Don Shula has passed away. Uh, the Miami Dolphins have released a statement. Don Shula was the patriarch of the Miami Dolphins for 50 years. He brought the winning edge to our franchise and put the Dolphins in the city of Miami in the national sports scene. Our deepest thoughts and prayers go out to Marianne along with his children, Dave, Donna, Sharon, Ann, and Mike. Uh, sad day there. Uh, sad, sad to see that. Uh, what a what an amazing guy he was. Uh, now... At the bottom of the hour, David McIntosh, the president of Club for Growth, is going to talk to me about cutting red tape as a priority. This is one thing where I think Republicans have some good inroads for 2020. The level of resistance on the left to cutting red tape. For example, did you know that there's now a flower shortage in the United States. There actually is a flower shortage in the United States. But there's no shortage of wheat. There's no shortage of grain. And there's no actual shortage of flour. Huh? How can there be? Well, more people are baking. Uh, King Arthur Flour is saying they, they have surveyed consumers. And people who normally bake once a month are now stuck at home. So they're baking once a week. And the people who normally bake once a week are baking every day. Uh, listen, I've been working on my sourdough starter for a while, and it's getting really good. I got to master the bread now. I got a loaf in the in the refrigerator, for, in, the, in the refrigerator, rising slowly that I intend to test this afternoon after I get off the air. But 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 it, it, this is it, it's it's becoming a thing. All this cooking from home stuff. 
How's it going to go? How's it going to work? We're going to find out. But there are left-wing activists out there now who are telling people you shouldn't be buying flour. My buddy Britt Cochran, let, let me let me find this for you. Uh, he texted me, yes, texted me the other day. This is this is crazy to me. Uh, why you need to stop baking bread? This is some woman took to Medium. Up, she deleted the account, probably because I was shaming her. So some woman gets on on Medium, which is a website you can go write stuff on, and she writes this piece about how. When people give her food, she doesn't eat it because she doesn't know whether it's organic or not. She doesn't know whether they grew their own vegetables or not. And she's poor and grows her own vegetables and does her own baking. And all of you people in your freaking sourdough starters are buying up all the flour and she can't bake anymore. And so you people need to stop it so she can go back to baking. I mean, the whole thing was just read super selfishly. I mean, it was, it was a, 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 a super, a, a just unserious piece. <laughs> and yet people were circulating it, saying, oh, she's right. We're denying flour to people who might need, you know what? Yeah, you're denying King Arthur flour. There, there's lots of generic flour brands out there people can buy. It's just, it is amazing to see the left now say, oh, I guess maybe we do need to stop making our sourdough at home. And yet in 30 years, they'll be able to write whole books on how they made their sourdough during a quarantine 30 years prior. Good gracious. This is timely given uh, my last topic, the the great flour shortage in the United States of America. Uh, It's not just people baking the reason you can't find flour at all the grocery stores. One of the biggest reasons is because uh, commercial manufacturers of flour who are used to selling to restaurants and, and commercial enterprises are having a hard time getting around government red tape to allow them to repackage their commercial listings for flour for the consumer market at grocery stores. And we're seeing this with also meat and other things as well. David McIntosh is joining me from the Club for Growth to talk about the effort they're helping lead to cut through government red tape. David, welcome to the program. Uh, great to be with you, Eric. Hope you're uh, doing so well I- and healthy. Yeah, I am. I, I hope you are. All of us quarantined in our separate ways. <laughs> yes, yes, thank you. Yeah, uh, learning so, to work from home, and but we're, we're still out there pushing hard for freedom. David, I, I was talking about this story before you came on, the, this great global flour shortage where there, there's enough flour, uh, there's enough wheat, there's enough grain, there's enough of the supply chain, except they're so used to supplying so much to restaurants and commercial enterprises, and the government red tape involved in switching from commercial sale to retail sale is, is making it impossible to make that conversion. And, and so it was great. I saw you were on the counter today to talk about red tape. I figured I'd throw that out first, but there's so many yeah issues of red tape out there right now that are causing the recovery to not go as planned. Absolutely, Eric. Um, That's a great example of what the government rules and regulations do to hinder our economic recovery, or in this case, responding to the quick change in demands that happened because of the uh, lockdown orders that we received. Uh, We're proposing that the government drastically reduce its red tape in order to allow businesses, particularly small businesses, to come back to work quickly and to hire more employees. It turns out that for a typical small business, $15,000 per employee is how much government rules, regulations, red tape, paperwork cost them. 
if we can reduce that even by a third, that means they'll have more money to hire more people and get them back to work quicker. And that should be the primary goal right now for Congress and for the Trump administration. And the good news is the Trump administration is already starting to do this wherever they have the flexibility. But we've proposed a bill and several members of the Senate and House are pushing it that would let President Trump waive the unnecessary rules and regulations like the ones on flour that you mentioned. There's others that affect health care. For a long time, doctors couldn't do telemedicine across state lines. Uh, they've lifted that temporarily, but let's make that permanent so people can get better health care from the doctors they want. And it, just one after the other, every aspect of life is governed by these rules and regulations. Most of them are not needed. Some we need for health and safety. That makes sense to keep those. But let's simplify these rules and regulations, especially now when we want employers to quickly rehire people and get back up on their feet. Well, it, you know, it it sounds to you and me like a no-brainer to do something like this, but I, I suspect that there's resistance in the Democrats in Congress to allow this president in particular the power to be able to do that. Uh, is there any sort of Democratic buy-in on this? No, in fact, the Democrats want to go the other way and add more regulations, particularly <laughs> in the energy area where they see, okay, here's an opportunity we can force the Republicans to accept our our climate change agenda and start adding even more rules and regulations about what kind of fuel people use, basically stop them from using carbon fuels. And But the good news is the American public is with us. Um, we did a poll and 65% of the Americans, Republicans, independents, Democrats, voters, all agree that it makes sense to give President Trump that authority. So two out of three Americans are with us. Hopefully the Democrats in Congress will get the message and agree to do something that, so that we can lift this red tape. That's, that's got to be the next step in, in helping us reopen the economy. One of the things I, I've noticed, I, I don't hold me to this, but it, it was Churchill or Eisenhower, one of them during World War II, who said when you, you meet a crisis and come out on the other side, uh, you realize the things that you thought uh, were so turn out not to be so. And one of the things that I have noticed so frequently on both sides, but particularly on the left with their environmental insistence, is they've come into a crisis, a global pandemic that's ground the world's economy to a halt. And the very same ideas they advocated three months ago, they believe are suddenly uh, the same ideas today uh, just reapplied. That all the global warming solutions are the same solutions to deal with the coronavirus. And it's really impressive that they can be that dogmatic. Uh, well, I'll tell you what it is, Eric. Their, their real agenda is control, right? They, they use the fear of climate change. They use the fear of coronavirus to say, we've got to let the government control people's lives. And that's where uh, the medical professions need to advise us on what we need to do to get past the epidemic. But after that, we've got to go back to freedom. It's the only way that we can actually thrive and people can be healthy and be well off because they've got a job and be able to work. You know, I've been in the in the shelter in place was necessary camp, but I've noticed that there were a lot of people who were there with me on this flatten the curve by staying home who now I'm ready to reopen because we flattened the curve, just like all the experts said. And now you've got a lot of particularly politicians out there saying, well, OK, yeah, we flattened it, but we actually need to completely crater the curve before we can let people go back to work. I mean, from a free market's perspective, it seems like we're going to need to reopen businesses at some point soon because 
the government spending money it doesn't even have. Where, where, what would the Club for Growth's position be on on how do we start letting people get back out of their houses? I th- well, one, I think we've got to, to take serious account to what the health experts say um, and, and listen to their guidance. But they're starting to say the key is that hospitalizations are down, people are getting it less. They never said to us, you're not going to get the virus. Unfortunately, people were scared into thinking if they stayed in their homes, they'd never get it. What they told us was, we just want to slow down the rate. Eventually, it's, we know it's going to run its course. Well, that's happening. I, I think Georgia is going to be a great example for the rest of the country. The governor made the decision, let, it's time we can start lifting some of the restrictions. When people see that that works, they're going to be less fearful and allow their politicians to reopen their economy. We have to do it. By the way, people are worse off when they're unemployed and have no income. And the government can't just keep printing money because at some point it just becomes worthless. So you can't say, well, we can stay and lock down for 18 months and everything will be fine. You know, it is one of those weird scenarios where I, I know you and I see eye to eye on on government spending being out of control and debt and deficit, and, and suddenly the government almost has to do what it's doing, having forced everyone to shut down. But we're going to have a debt and deficit discussion one day and probably way sooner than you or I may have thought because of the situation. And it yeah. just seems like there's no political will to deal with this. We've got some great friends like Chip Roy in Texas and a few others who care deeply about the issue, but you, you don't really hear a lot of anybody in Washington these days talking about the, some of the issues you and I care about so much. No, you're absolutely right. Both Republicans and Democrats have become big spenders. And then when you have the fear of the unknown, which the coronavirus brought in, uh, they they don't think about what the consequences are going to be down the line. Now, they've structured some of these programs to basically not spend as much as the headline said they were spending and get some of the loans repaid. But that's it's still $25 trillion is a huge amount of debt that we're putting on the shoulders of the younger generations. Sadly, I'm worried that what it's going to take is a crisis in the financial area before people sinks in reality. We can't just keep doing this. Right now, everybody in Washington thinks ah, it's, we can just – borrow more from the Federal Reserve. They don't think about what that means, that in fact, in the end, you're going to deflate your currency. And and they've even, the liberals have started coming up with economic theory saying, no, no, you don't have to worry about it right. at all to kind of numb the the response rate. But it will happen. There will be a crisis. And at that point, it'll be, frankly, too late before to prevent massive economic harm. So it's good that Chip's there. We need to keep sounding the alarm and trying as hard as we can to get the politicians to realize it's not your money. Stop spending it as if there's no tomorrow. You know, so I want to throw you a curveball but on this particular topic. Not Sorry to get away from red tape here for a minute. No, I realize fine. you're probably the perfect person to talk to about this. I had Kelly Leffler on a couple of weeks ago and, and was pointing out to her a number of uh, friends of mine who are in the finance say the worst thing – that we're not going to realize about this viral situation probably till five years from now is a lot of companies that were on the verge of folding because of a a lot of risky, bad decisions are suddenly going to get propped up 
And in five years, we're going to realize the moral hazards we've created by allowing some of these businesses to stay. Now, her position was that's a legit point, but we got to get through the crisis first. But yes, that's something we need to deal with. And, and and to your point of a financial crisis coming, it does seem like there were a lot of companies that were making a lot of decisions based on permanent good times. We'll never see a bear market again that are suddenly now getting government loans to stay in business when they probably should have folded. And I, I am worried we're going to see this in a couple of years, this collapse. It, it, it always happens. You're exactly right. The the moral hazard of uh, letting people appear to have something for nothing in these free loans. And any time the government intervenes this way and, and they can't help but pick winners and losers, you're going to see huge distortions in in the economy, in the behavior. And, the, and what you're really doing there is deferring the pain because when those companies are unsteady, they don't have a profitable mo- mo- motive or they've got a better competitor, but they're being propped up, eventually they're not going to stay in a free market and you're just delaying the, the problem rather than kind of ripping the Band-Aid off, letting the people go back to a job that is a better job for them or the capital be redeployed to a better investment. Now, let me circle back here before before I let you go on red tape. What can people do if they want to support the Club for Gross effort on, on cutting red tape and getting some Democrats to support? What should people be doing? Uh, first, uh, definitely call your congressmen and, and senators. They need to hear from people that cutting red tape is a key priority to helping people get back to work and more small businesses in particular be able to reopen and rehire their their folks. Um, that should be the next step rather than a whole another round of big spending. And uh, call Republicans, call Democrats, everybody, and, and register with that. We've got a website set up. They can go there. I think it links directly to your member of Congress. Uh, clubforgrowth.org is our website, and there's a special red tape coalition portion of that. Um, and that help would be tremendous. And then it, it's getting to be election time. We're, we're also a super PAC, and we're going to be very engaged trying to get some really good free market conservatives elected in Georgia. You, you've got three open congressional seats, two Senate seats up. Uh, the makeup of the, the U.S. Congress is going to be heavily affected by what people do in vo- Georgia in this next election. So find people who believe in freedom and, and go out and help them win. Well, David, I've told you this before, and I'll I'll say it again while the audience is listening. The Club for Growth is the very first political organization I ever supported in my life and have been supporting you guys ever since, and I'm glad you were able to join me this morning, and good luck with this. Happy to drive people to the cause. Absolutely. I, let me, if you will, Eric, mention a couple of people we have endorsed. Um, sure. Uh, McCormick in, in that district and Gertler in his district are two that – as you know, we do a lot of vetting, uh, interview them, research their background, and those are two gentlemen who will be great new members of Congress. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't. I guess I missed the the press releases on these two. Good, because because I was going to support both of them too. So I'm glad y'all are too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're going to be great. I look forward to seeing them up here in Washington. and They can join Chip in the ranks of people who understand what it takes for freedom to let people flourish. That's fantastic. David, thank you so much for stopping by. I appreciate it very much. Great to talk to you, Eric. That's David McIntosh. He's the president of the Club for Growth. Really was the very first political organization that I ever supported and gave money to. I've been a supporter of theirs ever since. Uh, Finding fiscal conservatives to go to Washington, D.C. You know, I always thought it was funny. The Club for Growth does a scorecard. And uh, the National Right to Life Coalition also does a scorecard. And if you want to, I always tell people, if you want to find the most pro-life members of Congress, look at the Club for Growth scorecard, not National Right to Life. Now, Now, why? 
Well, because uh, the the social conservative groups that are pro-life have for a long time tried to be as bipartisan as possible and sometimes would kind of skate around the edges of issues to make sure that they could get some Democrats on the scorecard as, as well. Club for Growth, they're all about fiscal conservatism. If you're a fiscal conservative, you may be personally in favor of abortion, but you do not want the government spending a dime on it. And it turns out that the Club for Growth scorecard is a better metric for the most pro-life members of Congress than a lot of the pro-life group scorecards uh, because of that fact. They don't want government spending. And, and now this is good. So Rich McCormick in the seventh and Matt Gertler uh, up in Doug Collins seat, I was going to support both of them uh, anyway. So I might as well make it official this morning and tell you that that up in northeast Georgia, I'm supporting Matt Gertler uh, for Congress. I, I was going to wait, but I, I might as well with the club coming out. That That's a good time for me to say it as well. Uh, if you know who Matt Gertler is, uh, he is a Dr. No of the state legislature here in Georgia, I guess you could say. He is very frequently the sole no vote uh, in the legislature when it comes to the budget issues. Uh, he's, a, he's a good guy, young guy, uh, solid conservative, and he will be fantastic up there. Uh, so, uh, go on and support Matt Gertler up in Northeast Georgia. He's running in Matt, uh, Doug Collins' seat. Doug Collins, of course, running in the Senate seat. And man, Gertler in Congress would be amazing. Thanks again to David McIntosh for stopping by. It really is, uh, worth thinking about these regulations. Uh, it's, it's just, man, um, the, the fact that, you know, and I don't hold me to this, please, because it's it's only a sugar lobbyist who told me this. But, you know, if I go across the street to my beloved Publix, I can buy a 25-pound bag of Dixie Crystal Sugar, the only sugar brand that you should buy. <laughs> no, it's not a product, bitch. It's just Dixie Crystals. <laughs> I'm cracking myself up and you people think I'm nuts. Um, but you can buy a 25-pound bag of sugar at Publix or Kroger. I saw them at Kroger, but you know what you can't buy? You can't buy a 25-pound bag of flour. They make them, but you can't buy them at the local grocery store. Now, you may be able to buy them at Sam's or Costco. I've never been in a Costco before, by the way. I have never, ever been in a Costco in my entire life. My buddy Clark Howard in Atlanta is convinced we need to go on a field trip to a Costco where apparently you got to wear a mask if you go into a Costco now. Maybe I will. You might be able to buy a 25-pound bag of flour at Costco, but you can't buy it at your local grocery store. And the sugar lobbyist friend of mine says it has to do with regulations. You can sell massive bags of flour to wholesalers, and so you can probably get them at Costco, but you can't at the grocery store. Now, I don't know where they would even put them at the grocery store, but you can't buy them. You're a serious baker. you got to source your 25-pound bags of flour. You know, one of the great side effects of all this, the, the great flour shortage of 2020 is local mill production. There's a, a local mill, it's like a 1,000 years old in, in Great Britain that has suddenly fired up to, to start uh, cracking wheat and making flour again. I know, I've got several friends of mine who are serious bakers who grind their own flour. They buy grain and they make their own flours. Uh, but 
Yeah, I, I suspect local is going to come back in that area as well. Now, King Arthur, if you're a baker, King Arthur is kind of the gold standard. Uh, and the reason that King Arthur is, is the gold standard is because they're very big in the baking community and flowers have different protein content. You did not need to know this, but you're going to know it now and you're going to win at trivia. One night, you're going to go to your local watering hole and they're going to talk about this. And because you listen to this program, you're going to know flour has different protein contents and the protein contents affect the gluten and the gluten is what holds the bread together. And the reason you need bread is to get all the gluten aligned. So it traps the gas bubbles and gives you what you want. So for bread, for example, you want a high protein, high gluten flour. So a bread flour has more protein than your all purpose flour. Your all purpose flour is kind of splitting the baby between the pastry flour and the bread flour. And then you got the pastry flour, which is very low protein because you want flaky. You don't want the air bubbles trapped in a, in a soft crumb. You, you want the flakes. So you got to have low protein in the pastry flour. And then they've got all sorts of other flour. They got the gluten-free flour, which really isn't flour, but it makes your gluten-free craze and those of you with celiacs uh, able to eat flour. But nonetheless, so you got protein in the different flours. And but here's the thing: you've got gold meal flour, you've got uh, white lily flour, you've got Pillsbury flour, you've got King Arthur flour, you've got all these different flour brands. And the all-purpose flour of each one is different. So, for example, your white lily flour, which is the southern flour, which you can find at most grocery stores in the south still, my wife only uses white lily all-bleached uh, self-rising flour for her biscuits. You do not make biscuits without white lily flour. doesn't matter where you are in the country. I've got a friend of mine who lives up in Massachusetts who has her family ship her white lily flour for the sole purpose of making biscuits. Why? Because of the protein in the white lily flour is less. It's not as low as pastry flour, but it is lower than your standard all-purpose flour. Now, King Arthur makes uh, self-rising low-protein flour, but it's not white lily. You need white lily. But white lily also makes all-purpose flour, and the white lily all-purpose flour, if you bake with white lily all-purpose flour as opposed to King Arthur flour, your cookies turn out a little more crumbly as opposed to softer because the protein content is less because of the southern wheat flour or the wheat grains that they use. Believe it or not, gold meal, I think, has slightly more flour than the um, than the, um, the than King Arthur standard. Listen, I, I don't mean to get into a dissertation of flour, protein, and gluten strands, but that's the point. Um, it, when you bake, King Arthur is such a big deal in the baking community. Most bread recipes presume you're using King Arthur flour. So if you get the gold meal flour or the Pillsbury flour or the white lily flour, your recipe is actually going to turn out slightly different from if you use the King Arthur flour which is why there's such a shortage of King Arthur flour right now, but that has spilled over. So I went to, for example, Fresh Market in Macon yesterday. I wore my mask. You can't get in the door without a mask. They saw, turned somebody away yesterday for not wearing a mask. And all they had was giant bags of gold meal flour. Like they had 10 pound bags turned on their side. They had no King Arthur flour. Well, that's because everybody's buying the King Arthur stuff. There's a shortage and you can't buy the 25 pound bag at your local grocery store. You got to go to the wholesale uh, place to get that because of government regulation. The whole thing, we need to rethink government regulation between consumer and commercial sales. My people, it is me, Eric Erickson. Welcome. It is the Eric Erickson Show. That would be my show. May the 4th be with you today. I should have started with the Star Wars theme, but eh, that's all right. Welcome. Yes, it is Star Wars Day around the world, May the 4th. Yes, that's right. You people called and complained to my producer that I was talking cooking in the last hour, distinguishing between the gluten content of flour. So now you got to talk Star Wars with me since you didn't like the cooking 
Actually, no, we have other news. There's actually big news. And believe it or not, this is big news. <laughs> Clarence Thomas has asked a question. It is the number one trending story on social media, not just in Georgia, but nationally. Clarence Thomas has asked a question. The Supreme Court has started oral arguments, uh, and they're doing them by phone. They're not actually going to the court. And the way they're doing the oral arguments is each lawyer gets two minutes to make their opening with no interruptions. And then each justice gets two minutes to ask questions, uh, two minutes worth of questions. And then they get two minutes for closing. That is how they're doing their Zoom arguments or whatever they're doing. <laughs> they're, they're, they're by phone. And, and Justice um, Chief Justice Roberts called on Justice Thomas who asked questions. Now, the reason this is the biggest trending item on social media in North America right now is because Justice Thomas does not ask questions. Justice Thomas, the last time Justice Thomas asked questions was in 2016. Uh, he asked a question. Now, this is the, the Associated Press uh, has this story up that the Supreme Court, let's see, this is from, uh, nope, it was so 2019 he asked one question, and uh, then he asked a question in 2016. It is really rare for Clarence Thomas to ask a question. The Supreme Court was about to adjourn for the day when the Georgia baritone politely inquired of the lawyer at the lectern. Justice Thomas, the court's only African-American member and lone Southerner, was breaking a three-year silence at high court arguments with a couple of questions in a case about racial discrimination in the South. The case involved a black Mississippi death row inmate who's been tried six times for murder and a white prosecutor with a history of excluding African-Americans from juries by using preemptory strikes for which no explanation is required. Prosecutor Doug Evans excused five African-Americans from the jury in inmate Curtis Flower's sixth trial. Would you be kind enough to tell me whether or not you exercised any preemptories? Thomas asked Sherry Lynn Johnson, Flower's Supreme Court lawyer. If so, Thomas wanted to know, what was the race of the jurors? In Flowers' sixth trial, Johnson said Flowers' lawyer excused three white jurors. But the defense lawyer's motivation is not the question here. The question is the motivation of Doug Evans, Johnson said. Even Thomas's conservative colleagues seemed to favor Flowers in the course of the hour-long session, and the justices' questions seemed intent to show that both sides can be conscious of race and jury selection. In a similar case from Georgia in 2016, Thomas was the only dissenter when the court ruled for a black Georgia inmate. Thomas wrote that the Supreme Court could not second-guess a trial judge who initially considered and rejected racial discrimination claims. Thomas is the only justice on the Supreme Court who does not ask questions from the bench on a regular basis. Now, you're wondering, you are wondering, well, Erickson, what question did Justice Thomas ask today? It's a relevant question. It's an appropriate question. I have no earthly idea. People... <laughs> I tried to find it because I know that's the most relevant question. My goodness, Justice Thomas hasn't asked questions in years. What was the question he asked? No one's saying. <laughs> Everyone.
everyone so shocked that Justice Thomas is asking a question, people forgot to actually report what he asked. <laughs> I'll find it. I'll find it in commercial break. I'm not kidding you. People were so amazed that Justice Thomas asked a question in this oral argument that no one actually documented what his question was. <laughs> That's 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 life at the Supreme Court these days. You know, one of the issues that they're going to have at the Supreme Court coming up is a religious liberty issue. That uh, in Colorado, you know, you've got the who's the baker out there in 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 Colorado that continues to be harassed, masterpiece uh, bakery. Um, he, he continues to be harassed because he continues to try to live his faith in his bakery shop. He's continued to be in business. People are continuing to send him business and gay rights activists and now transgender activists are harassing the guy again. He's going back to court again for discrimination. But there's something else here as well with Mr. Phillips and Masterpiece Bakery. There are other cases before the Supreme Court and we're seeing uh, issues related to religious liberty in New York City. For example, the speaker of the uh, New York City City Council put up a series of tweets saying it was time for Samaritan's Purse to go home. The speaker of the New York City Council is named Corey Johnson uh, a stalwart cheerleader against the charity. He put up a series of tweets uh, that the Speaker of the House or the Speaker of the, of the City Council has now decided that because the work is done, it is time for Samaritan's Purse to leave New York City. I'm, these are his words. This group, which is led by the notoriously bigoted, hate-spewing Franklin Graham, came at a time when our city couldn't in good conscience turn away any offer to help. The time has passed. Their continued presence here is an affront to our values of inclusion and is painful for all New Yorkers who care deeply about the LGBT community. You know, I mentioned earlier the the just ridiculous bigotry out there of the secularists in the last hour I, I i was explaining how so much tyranny comes from secularism uh because in real religion if you are saved it doesn't matter whether the other person isn't saved but in the secular religion if you're saved and the other person isn't saved well the other person's still going to ruin your hell on earth your heaven on earth they're going to keep it a hell on earth so you got to get rid of them and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest who was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set on him his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took on two denarii 
and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The man said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So the religious authorities, the Levite, the priest, they refused to help the man in the ditch. It was the Samaritan uh, who helped. The Samaritans, of course, um, being looked down upon by the Jews of the days because uh, their, their kingdom had fallen and they had split away uh, after Solomon. When Rehoboam becomes the king, they split. They formed the northern kingdom. And, well, there are issues. And they were not seen as very worthy to a lot of people. And here is the Samaritan who helps the man in the ditch. It's not the Levite. It's not the priest. It's the Samaritan who helps. He does so without question. He doesn't make a make the man make a profession of faith. He doesn't make the man do anything. He just helps. He shows Christian love to the one in need. Samaritan's Purse is a, a charity run by Franklin Graham. Now, I've, I've had some ish, political issues with Franklin Graham in the past few years uh, with some of the things he said and defenses he's offered to the president that I didn't think a, a Christian minister should be making. But uh, there's no question Samaritan's Purse has done good work around the world. In fact, Samaritan's Purse goes uh, oftentimes without anyone asking and sets up tents and missions and brings doctors and nurses and provides medical relief. And they did that in New York City. What is so striking is that when they go to Africa, to an area that is majority Muslim and they help, the Muslims do not demand they pack up and leave. When they go to an area of the world that is not predominantly Christian at all, they go to India, they go to Southeast Asia. You do not see the non-Christians demand they pack up and leave. But they went to a secular place, New York City. And New York City practices the religion of tolerance and diversity. You know, Archbishop Chaput, formerly of uh, the Philadelphia Archbishop, had this great line I have taken for my own. Evil preaches tolerance until it's dominant, and then it seeks to silence good. The tolerance tribe doesn't really want tolerance. They want acceptance. Uh, tolerance is seen as, as being second class. You must accept them or else. Well, Samaritan's Purse is a Christian organization. Biblically Orthodox Christianity does not sanction same-sex marriage uh, and views homosexuality as a sin. It's a 2,000-year-old religion. It has been consistent that day. The only branches of Christianity that claim otherwise are the dying branches of Christianity. They do not sustain themselves because people want the actual word of God, not the word of some priest in a robe up at the front of the Episcopal Church who tells you things that are contrary to Scripture. And so Samaritan's Purse tends to live out as a, as a godly organization, uh, being missionaries, being like the Good Samaritan. They go where needed, and they help without being asked, and they take care of those in need. And they don't care if you're gay or straight or transgender. They don't care if you're Muslim or communist or or animist or Zoroastrian. They don't care if you're Baptist or Episcopalian or Unitarian or United Church of Christ. They go and they help. And they went to New York and they helped. 
and secular gay rights activists in New York City have been attacking them for the audacity of helping set up field hospitals in New York City with trained and qualified doctors and nurses and supplies that New York City otherwise did not have. And they were perfectly fine to have them, ultimately. The city of New York was perfectly fine to have them. Everybody was perfectly fine to have them. But now the need has passed, and they're still there. And so the secularists, the atheists, the LGBT community, the practitioners of tolerance and diversity want the Christian bigots to leave now because they were perfectly happy to have their help but now need to resume their persecution. That's what you get with secularism. There's no grace in secularism. C.S. Lewis once walked in on a group of scholars at Oxford University who were debating the differences of the world's religions, and the the genius scholars, all of them largely secular, were debating and, and had largely come to the conclusion that every religion was the same. There wasn't a real good way to distinguish between the religions, and Lewis walked in on them, and they said, Lewis, what separates Christianity from all the other religions? And Lewis said, grace. No religion has a concept of grace except Christianity. Every religion has a concept of mercy to not do to people what they deserve, but only Christianity has the concept of grace to do to people what they do not deserve. That's the difference between grace and mercy. Mercy is you don't do to people what they deserve, and grace is you do to people what they don't deserve. You give people what they haven't earned. Samaritan's Purse went in, they showed grace to New York City. They gave New York City supplies. They gave them a field tent. They gave them doctors and nurses they did not otherwise have. They loved their neighbor as themselves. And New York City was perfectly happy to have it. It's a sign of just how quickly the city is recovering, by the way, that they can now say, throw the Christians out. We don't need them anymore. It's also a sign of the ugly, seedy underbelly of secularism that you're perfectly transactionally happy to take what a Christian will give you until you no longer need them, and then you're perfectly happy to turn on them and go back to persecuting them. I promised I would look. I did. Uh, So Clarence Thomas asked questions. He hadn't asked questions in a year. Uh, He asked one question a year ago, and prior to that, it was three years before, and prior to that, it was five years. The man does not ask questions. Uh, The reason Clarence Thomas has said in the past he doesn't ask questions is because he believes he should be able to gain everything he can uh, from the writings. And so he sits at the bench and he listens to the arguments. Uh, but he tries to discern what they mean from the writings, and he encourages people to be good writers. Uh, Really interesting guy. So the case is a patent and trademark office case against the website bookings.com. It's it's an appeal uh, from a case between the two, and he was asking questions about patents. Uh, As to what the precise thing was, I have no idea, but people were so shocked by Clarence Thomas asking questions that they couldn't actually... um, (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not making this up. I'm actually struggling to find uh, reports on what Clarence Thomas asked because so many reporters were shocked that he asked a question that they didn't actually report on what his question was. Oh, my goodness gracious. Okay, 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 okay. Uh, I want to play you audio from uh, Dr. Burks. Dr. Burks was on this weekend, one of the, one of the shows and was asked about reopening the country. There are some concerns out there about reopening the country, and I want you to listen. 
Well, I think federal guidelines are a pretty firm policy of what we think is important from a public health standpoint. We also made it possible for states to open counties independently of the entire state, because again, some of these outbreaks are very local and have to be studied and understood that way. And so as states reopen, we really want them to follow the gating criteria, but we also made it very clear to the American people, this is what you need to continue to do to protect yourself. You need to continue to social distance. You need to continue to practice scrupulous hand washing. You need to know where your hands and where they have been and what they have touched and make sure you don't touch your face. And I think most importantly, if you have any pre-existing condition, through phase one and phase two of any reopening, we have asked you to continue to shelter in place. Now, obviously, the, the antagonism grows of people who don't want to shelter in place. And the government position is not an either or at this point. It is a phased, slow reopening. In Georgia, there have now been 183,002 tests done. There are 29,045 confirmed cases. There are 1,264 ICU admissions, 5,429 hospitalizations, 1,192 deaths total in Georgia. The hardest hit uh, by numbers is Fulton County, followed by DeKalb, Gwinnett Cobb, Hall, uh, the the metro Atlanta area. But per capita, it's actually southwest Georgia that's been the hardest hit. Southwest Georgia has, I mean, it's absolutely bonkers how bad southwest Georgia's been hit. Um, So Terrell County, for example has a total population of 8,467 people and 188 cases. That actually works out to 2,220 cases per 100,000 people. So some really hard-hit counties in South Georgia. Now, the day-to-day numbers, though, you should know, are on the 27th, 793 confirmed cases, 635 the 28th, um, 466, the 29th, well, 337, 334, rather, on the 30th. May 1st has 136. Uh, May 2nd has 22. And May 3rd has 5. And May 4th has 2. Now, here's the problem. When I started the program this morning, there were, according to this morning's report, there were 128 positive cases on May 1st. I am now into my two and a half hours in to this program, and that number's gone from 128 to 136. So that number's going to go up. All the numbers are going to go up. Take the 27th, for example. On the, uh, the 27th, just a week ago when I was focusing on the 27th, which was a week from the high. The high was April 20th. It was 899, although it was less than that. Uh, A week ago, when I was focusing on the 27th, there were only about 100 to 200 cases. That number's gone up to 793. So all of these numbers continue to go up. But, 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 this is the important thing. The overall number continues to decline. As Dr. Burks has pointed out and as Dr. Toomey's pointed out here in Georgia, As testing has gone up, the percentage of positive cases has gone down. And that's actually a really good sign in Georgia that the data is with the governor on reopening slowly. But the goalposts keep shifting. 
I'm sorry. I just saw this video. This guy, and I, I don't know where this guy lives. Um, where, where is this? Uh, somewhere up north, some guy decided to trap a mouse. <laughs> some guy used one of those humane traps that traps the mouse so you can let him go free. Free, free. So he goes outside. He releases the mouse. The mouse takes off running and a hawk swoops down and grabs the mouse. <laughs> this this reminds me of my, my son and I were in our yard. You know, uh, owls remarkably are super quiet uh, when they fly. There's actually this great BBC documentary on uh, a snow owl and how quiet a snow owl is. You cannot hear the sucker fly even when it comes past you. And barn owls are very similar. You cannot hear them. Uh, and my son and I, we were outside. Oh, this has been a couple of years ago. There, there's a hill up behind our house. And there was this cute little bunny. This cute little bunny is on the hill. And we're sitting there. Oh, that bunny's so cute. And blam! This owl comes down out of nowhere, snatches the rabbit, and flies <laughs> It was Wild Kingdom in the backyard. We've also had a panther in the backyard before. <laughs> in any event, I, so I, I have to apologize. I was remiss. I should have started every hour of the show this way today. Yes, I should have. It, 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 my bad. I, I, it, it, today is May 4th. May the 4th be with you. Yes, today is Star Wars Day. They have uh, Disney Plus is putting all of the uh, Star Wars movies on Disney Plus today because it's just, you know what they should do is they should release early the second season of The Mandalorian. That's what Disney should do if they really loved us and didn't just want our money, but uh, they're not. But nonetheless, it is May the 4th. Okay, uh, there, there's a story here that I need to get to, uh, where is Sean Trindy wrote this piece. Yes. I mentioned this before we went to break the goalposts moving. And Sean has the Sean Trindy is one of the best analysts out there. He writes for real clear politics. Let me read you some headlines first. I, I mentioned these read these in the first hour. I want to do it all over again. Muskogee County and surrounding areas of Georgia report over 1700 coronavirus cases. Muskogee County area reports 15 new COVID-19 cases overnight. Georgia reports over 800 new cases Saturday and eight deaths. Georgia confirms over 330 new cases Sunday. If you hear that data, what you interpret it as is a skyrocketing COVID-19 situation in Georgia. What the media is failing to do, and part of this isn't their fault, part of it is the way the data is released from the public health department, Part of it is that test results from last week are coming in. So the numbers I mentioned, the 27th, how the 27th has gone up from a couple of hundred cases to 790 some odd cases, those test results came back. Now, those people, the odds are if they have it, they still have it and they're still contagious. But the numbers on a daily basis continue to go down and you would not know that if you read most of the media. The, the way the media is covering this is bad. The good news is that the percentage of cases is going down. We are increasing testing and the number of people testing positive continues to go down in Georgia. That is really good news. 
Uh, so I want to read you this Sean Trinity piece. When we began our foray into quarantine seven weeks ago, there was a unifying and eminently sensible rationale behind it, bend the curve. The idea was this. If allowed to go unchecked, COVID-19 would overwhelm hospitals, leaving patients without beds. Short on ventilators, patients would be left to suffocate. In short, by slowing the spread of the virus, we would prolong the amount of time it spread through the country, but we would reduce the overall total number of deaths. Moreover, we would buy time for the nation's testing apparatus to ramp up, produce more ventilators, and expand hospital capacity. This concept went viral. Vox produced one of the most memorable images of the epidemic with the chart below showing cases without protective measures reaching a sharp peak, blowing through the capacity of the healthcare system, while imposing protective measures resulted in a longer, flatter curve that fails to overwhelm the healthcare system. The image spread rapidly on social media, from President Barack Obama even retweeting it and flattened the curve, became the number one hashtag on Twitter for quite some time. Notice what the hashtag storyline was at that time. We need to give the country time to get its testing program going, to expand hospital capacity and get enough ventilators in place. The virus will spread longer, but in the end, fewer people will die. Pop culture explainers spread like wildfire on sites like Medium with articles such as The Hammer and the Dance receiving over 40 million views and being translated into dozens of languages. The thesis of the article was explicit, bring the hammer down on coronavirus, which under the assumptions of the article would kill 2% of people infected and then begin to dance, tamping down outbreaks as they pop up here and there. Exponential growth entered the lexicon of people who had never taken a statistics course, and charts of coronavirus case accelerations and often never decelerating made their way around the web. If this really was the goal, then job well done, as they say, or largely so. Consider the following chart. It shows the daily number of cases for each state indexed to the largest number of daily cases in that state. In other words, the red square for New York doesn't mean the same number of cases as the red square in Wyoming. Instead, it means that was the date that New York had the most cases for New York in the time series, while the square for Wyoming means that was the date that Wyoming had the most cases it's ever seen. Now, you can't see this, but it's very interesting in that uh, the, the, the bright red for Alaska was at the end of March. Georgia's bright red was the, the middle of March, or I'm sorry, the middle of April. You move over towards past April 15th, you get to Ohio, and you move all the way to the top of the chart to where we are now, and it's, it's uh, Delaware, Virginia, and Minnesota. There are many interesting stories within the data, but the main takeaway should be relatively clear. No states are on anything resembling an exponential growth trajectory. Almost all states are past a peak, and most states are substantially past a peak. This would suggest that in many states, the question really should be how to reopen while keeping hospitals from being overwhelmed again. This is especially true given that the situation on the ground has changed dramatically since early March. Most states have substantially expanded hospital capacity both by securing emergency locations to be used in case of overflow and by suspending elective surgeries to the point where many hospitals are facing financial crises. Moreover, the arrival of the first COVID-19 therapeutic remdesivir will help since hospital stays are shortened when the drug is used. Personal protective equipment and ventilator availability have expanded. We've developed techniques for sanitizing PPEs and ventilators may not be as useful as once thought. 
And as of this writing, we're testing over 200,000 people a day, which eclipses the rate South Korea achieved when it contained its viral outbreak. Perhaps most surprisingly, the death rate looks lower than initially expected. It isn't clear how much lower. Studies disagree. But most of the serological studies find an implied fatality rate lower than 1% to arrive at the conclusion that 2 million people would die if the virus were allowed to run its course. In other words, all by every metric that every healthcare professional said we needed to do, we've done. By every measure. And yet what has happened? The goalposts have moved. Now, if you're a regular listener of this program, back in January, I started talking about this fire. I never expected that I would spend days on end, weeks on end, a month on end trapped at home having to talk about this virus. I never expected that. But if you've been listening to this program since January, I've been telling you that if the virus got here, it was going to be bad and that we could expect food shortages and the like. And so every time you go to the grocery store, you should stock up. And I started. I started in February anticipating we would still be able to go on spring break at the end of March. I started buying extra pasta, extra beans, extra canned goods, extra toilet paper, extra paper towels. Every time I'd go to the grocery store, I'd come out with a little extra. Every time I'd go to the grocery store, I'd come out with some more hand sanitizer. I'd come out with some more Lysol wipes. I'd come out with some more Clorox. I'd come out with some more flour. I'd come out with some more sugar. I'd come out with some more stuff that could be put in the freezer every single time I did it. February, the beginning of March, before shelter in place happened. As stocks were running dry at the grocery store, we're overflowing at our house. Because I tried to prepare you guys, and let me explain why, because I've never really explained in detail why I thought this could be a problem. When I was a kid, I grew up in Dubai in the Middle East. There was a year, and I cannot remember the year. I remember it happening, and I I haven't asked my sister. She would remember. My oldest sister by this time uh, was in boarding school or back in Louisiana with my family, so it had to be fourth grade or later. Um, But there was the Hajj. You know, the Hajj is is part of the, the five pillars of Islam. Hajj is a pilgrimage to Mecca for uh, Muslims. And there was an outbreak of meningitis. And it began to spread in Saudi Arabia and then spread in the Middle East. As people were coming back from Hajj, the virus began, or the the bacteria, I guess it was bacterial meningitis, began to spread. And our schools in, in the United Arab Emirates all had to be shut down. And no one was allowed to go to school until they had gotten a meningitis shot and had certification that they had gotten the shot. School had to be shut down to stop the spread of meningitis. Everything pretty much had to be shut down to stop the spread of meningitis. And everybody had to get a vaccine. And I saw what China was doing. And as the virus spread to other countries, Taiwan and South Korea, Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia, and it kind of reminded me of that. And, and I, ne- I never really talked about that experience from growing up here on radio. But that's why I started talking about, you know, we should take this seriously. I had seen something like this before, never to this extent, never this bad. And then the healthcare experts started explaining that the reason we needed to do what we were doing wasn't to stop people from dying. People were going to die from this virus. There's no vaccine. There's no cure. 
It kills three to five percent of the people globally that it's infected. Dr. Fauci says maybe one percent because more people have it than we realize. But we needed to flatten the curve because hospitals around the world were getting overwhelmed. This is something different than the flu. It's not the flu. It's not not even the same uh, class of virus as the flu. The influenza and the coronavirus, they're not really the same. And we needed to do something because this virus spreads more quickly than the flu, kills more people than the flu. It infects more people than the flu. It has a disproportionate impact on the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions and could overwhelm hospitals so much as was happening around the world that people who had other life-threatening conditions wouldn't be able to get into hospitals because of the situation. And sure enough, we've seen that. We've seen it around the world. We've seen it here. We've seen it in New York. We've seen it in Seattle. We've seen it in New Orleans. We've seen it all over the country that hospitals were getting overwhelmed. And all of the the pundits and, and, and experts said we need to flatten the curve. If we stay home, hospitals will have time to gear up. We'll flatten the curve. The virus will be here longer, but fewer people will die. We'll be in better shape. We'll be able to, to get the resources we need deployed appropriately. Everybody said that. And so we did. And now I'm saying we flattened the curve here in Georgia and elsewhere. It's time to go back to work. But there are a lot of people out there now saying, no, no, you still have to shelter in place. You still have to shut down. You still have to close up shop. Because now we got to crush the curve. It's no longer flattening the curve. We got to bend the curve. We got to crush the curve. We got to eliminate the curve. We got to eliminate the virus. We're not going to eliminate the virus. Everybody has said the virus is coming back. Well, the weather's heating up, and they've also said we now know there's plenty of evidence that that high heat and humidity stalls the virus. I talked to a Georgia epidemiologist the other day who's critical of the governor's reopening, but even she said that, you know, the, the summer will slow the virus. This is Sean Trinity again. The shift has probably been the most pronounced among pundits. Perhaps the strongest statement on the crush the curve point of view comes from an article published in The Atlantic with the frankly unhinged headline, George's Experiment in Human Sacrifice. With the subtitle, the state is about to find out how many people need to lose their lives to shore up the economy. Infections in Georgia appear to be trending downward. It's beginning to reopen its economy, including gyms and hair salons. The upshot of the title in the article, which avoids the hyperbolic language from the headline, is that people will die as a result of the decision to open early. It seems likely that this is the case, but the idea behind bending the curve wasn't that we would bend the curve until there were no more cases. Indeed, it was expressed that we might end up with a similar number of cases, but by spreading them out, we would lower the number of fatalities. This, then, is something different. The idea that we should use the shutdowns to eradicate the virus as best we can and that weighing lives against the economy reflects a choice tantamount to sacrificing some portion of the population. That was never the argument. was not the argument I have made. It was not the argument that the White House has made. It's not the argument Dr. Burks has made. It's not the argument Dr. Fauci's made or Dr. Toomey or, or Brian Kemp or any other major public policy official. It has never been about eradicating the virus or stopping people from dying. It was always about reducing the curve to stop hospitals from being overwhelmed so that hospitals could take care of people who get the virus to reduce the rate of death. 
And when you go back out and live your lives to take the precautions you otherwise couldn't take, remember two months ago, nobody could find a surgical mask. Now you can get them on Amazon from Wuhan, China, no less. And yet they've moved the goalposts. And you know, ironically, uh, Gilead Science has announced it's donating its entire supply of remdesivir to the federal government. And you know what's happening? They're getting attacked. That's right. Gilead Science is getting attacked by the left. Oh, if you can donate this, you should be able to donate all your medicine. Why are you donating it to the federal government? The states need it. The federal government doesn't need it. People have politicized this and they've lost the perspective. It was always about flattening the curve. We flattened it. It's time to reopen now. I'm back, but I had to say, I've been waiting an hour to sneeze and I finally did. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Um, so uh, there's a, this poll out. I mentioned the other day, I just got a text message. The, the Washington Times is running with this poll as well. A new poll in Georgia held bad news for Republican Senator Kelly Leffler while offering mixed messages for President Trump and state leaders, according to an account in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, a closely watched Senate contest. Uh, Ms. Leffler is the incumbent by virtue of being appointed by Brian Kemp. She's facing serious conservative challenge from Doug Collins, stalwart conservative backer President Trump. The poll was conducted at the behest of Speaker David Ralston, a Republican allied with Mr. Collins and a sometimes political sparring partner with Mr. Kemp. And it turns out uh, that the governor has very low approval rating. So does David Perdue. Uh, curiously enough, it looks like the, the the state house Republicans come out smelling like roses in this poll. Funny how that works. So uh, the, a majority of people say they have no idea what the legislature is doing. And yet the legislature comes out looking better than the governor. Wow. Well, guess what? Uh, I have dug into the methodology of this polling. Y'all, it's a text message poll. And an online poll. And a robocall poll. I have not heard of anyone treating text message polling seriously. And yet, this poll is getting inordinate amount of attention, largely because the Speaker of the Georgia House released it, uh, and it's a text message poll. Uh, you know, okay, so so here's here's the thing. Um, that yes, the poll came out, the media circulated it, and it was an internal poll showing them badly. I talked about it last week, and, and lesson learned here. I should have looked at the methodology before talking about it last week. A text message poll is not a credible poll. Not a credible poll at all. And we got to, I think, um, understand that a lot of these internal polls that get leaked like this are messaging polls. So what is the message that you would want to leak? When it shows the state legislature doing well, the governor doing bad, and the president doing bad, and Kelly Leffler being sunk, and Doug Collins winning, well, what is the message? Well, it seems to be a message that the House Republican leadership wants the House Republicans to know everything for them is A-OK and hunky-dory. And I would suggest to you that that those tend to be warning signs. When you're releasing polls like this that are messaging polls of internal polling, that tends to mean they want you to believe something that isn't true. 
And I would suggest to you that the issue is that, yeah, you know, people are going to be damaged by this, but the House Republicans aren't as well off as they think.